Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. So Julie, today we were able to talk with a writer who you know very well. I know, indeed. Cameron Rosenblum. Um, we're, we've been writing partners and friends for, for years and years now, and it's so great to see her on her second book. Yay, second book! Um, I loved hearing about how it's different to write a second book. I loved hearing about her process and how she changed the ending completely with her editor. But my personal favorite, because you know I love to tell you I told you so, is how she knew she was getting close because the rejections got better, which I've said to many of you, and you never believe me. Ha. <laughs> I never believed you. <laughs> I know. No one does. What is that? <laughs> um, so in this, you'll also hear about how Cameron's just a master of, you know, big and small tension. And she always has interesting ways of construct constructing her books that are something that you can just look at as another way to create a project. That said, we do cover some difficult topics in this episode, so you might want to get headphones and there is a content warning for sexual assault. It is described, I would say, in medium detail, but exists off the page in the story. Is that correct? It's off the page. Yes, everything's off the page. And um, what we don't want you to think is that this book is, you know, full of triggers. Um, it's just, we're talking about it in general sense. And once again, this has plenty of great craft talk and, you know, learning about the writer's journey. And a power arc that I, for one, cannot wait to hear more about. We can't spoil it for you, but let's just say the character does not remain without power for long. Enjoy the episode, everyone. So today we have a very special guest, Cameron Kelly Rosenblum. Cam, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. See you guys. And you were one of our early success stories. Can you tell us about your publishing journey? Yes. I spent 10 years on one book that is still in a drawer. <laughs> so uh, it pretty much holds up that old saw about how, you know, your first book is the one that you learn how to write on. That was definitely the case for me. But then my second one got picked up in a two book deal from HarperCollins Quiltry. And so The Stepping Off Place published in 2020. And I just released, they just released The Sharp Edge of Silence in April. And it also got picked up in the UK by Hotkey Books and released also in April. And it's releasing in November in Germany. That's exciting. Congratulations. Yeah, it is. Thank you. I know. I, I think it's so interesting. It's like babies, right? It's like, it you is. know, like, like, I just remember that first day after your meeting, you called me, you're like, it went so well. And, you know, she offered just to read the full and that faculty member and you went on to sign uh, with Writer's House, um, which is so amazing. And now like, here we are just such a short time later and you have two book babies and multiple languages and everything else is so exciting. So this book, The Sharp Edge of Silence, um, is really what we're going to focus on today. We're going to, for people out there, Cam does such an amazing job with tension and has some really cool 
cool ways of looking at the, you know, the best way to deal with point of view. So we're going to dive into that today. Could you talk a little bit about your creative process with your agent and your editor? Yeah. So Allie is amazing. She's at Writer's House and Allie Levick, sorry. And she she's great at the ideas stage. She's really, and, and, and with my first book, we did a lot of editing before she ever put it out in submission. So she is very talented at shaping shaping the big, big story. And uh, I'm so grateful to her for that. So she helped me shape the proposal. And then once it goes off to, you know, once I'm working with Karen Chaplin over at Quiltree at HarperCollins, she is amazing. She is the person who likes to ask questions and not be too heavy handed, but she just will ask questions. And so our revision process basically go back and forth where she'll just send it back. She'll give me an editorial letter that takes a couple days to digest, as most people will find. I think most writers find that. But essentially, I think we first of all, one of the great things about having an editor that gets you <laughs> is that you're going to agree on 90% of the things, I think. But sometimes they're they're big things that you disagree on. It had a totally different ending that um, this one had a totally different ending. We didn't go around on it. I, as soon as she pointed out some of the flaws, I knew she was right. Um, so, you know, that's the best kind of teacher who can sort of propel you forward while still ma making you still feel like you're doing a good job is a pretty great skill to have. So I really, really love working with Karen. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, my, my, my own creative process, I just have to really get in a zone when I get into writing these books and I kind of am thinking about it all the time everywhere I go, <laughs> whether I'm driving or I'm like waking up in the middle of the night. It's just sort of consuming me until I get it to the place where I feel happy with it. And I do really like the ending now. And I'm glad she pushed me to change it. But like in the first book, the last the last chapter and the first chapter are pretty much exactly how they always were from like when I did my first drafts. But um, but the middle, you know, those middles that are a little middle. pesky. They're that a little pesky. Middle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I can you talk mm -hmm. about how it's different to um, pitch your subsequent books after your debut? Well, so my agent, they wanted to pitch it as two book deal They from the get-go. So of course I had didn't have a second book written already, but um, when I had first signed with my agent, you know, they had asked me for, um, so I say they, because when I first signed, Allie was a junior agent to Bree Johnson, who subsequently left Writer's House. So now Allie is my only agent and was my most active agent all along, although Brie was lovely. But uh, so when I so when I first signed, they were kind of co-agenting me. And so, you know, they we worked up some of the ideas and they really liked the idea of this post Me Too girl going rogue. So, uh, so we needed to do about 30 pages. So basically it was the first three chapters. So a chapter from every point of view. And then basically just all I really needed was to 
have a gen almost like a book flap of so they could get a sense of where the story was going. And so that was really great in terms of being able to, I mean, I can't even imagine that was just the best of just being able to sell something without having written the whole thing. But I do remember Bree saying, now are you sure you want to do this? Because they're probably going to make the deadlines pretty close. Are you going to be able to pull off writing this whole thing in such and such amount of time? And of course, I was like, I will make it happen. <laughs> but then the pandemic hit. And so I didn't actually, I, I, originally it was supposed to come out in 21, which would have given me like one year to get that whole book together. So I'm kind of, obviously, I would rather have not had a pandemic, but it kind of worked. I don't know how I would have been able to pull that off just because I have a day job too. So, um, but, you know, not knowing where it's going to end. I mean, I think that's why we had to do the ending a couple of times to get it right is because I really didn't know how it was going to end when I pitched the book. I just kind of knew what I wanted the emotional arc to be, but I didn't know what that was going to look like as the um, actual action plot. So uh, that took a little while to figure out. But yeah, it's it's very liberating when you can sell when you're when you get to the place where you can sell on a on an idea. So highly recommend it. <laughs> and can you tell us what the proposal entails? What they sent out on submission was like a cover letter that would be similar to a query sort of introducing me and why I was a good person to write this book. And then so sort of like a cover letter, 30 pages. I mean, to call it a synopsis is really a vastly too generous a term because I really didn't have the whole synopsis synopsis worked out. So and synopsis are terrifying, but I um I think my agents would have loved it if I had the whole thing, but I didn't. And they just said, okay, this is good enough. And apparently it was good enough. So yeah, so it did go to auction. But um, yeah, I'm very happy I landed with Karen. It was it's been fabulous working with her. And just to clarify, I wasn't sure if I understood you earlier, Julie, did Cam do a meeting with us before signing with Ali? Or is that what you meant? So my first agent 10 minute query, I think. Mm -hmm. 10 minutes with an expert. 10 minutes with an expert resulted in that person offering to sign me. And so from that, I had a really hard time, but I wanted to make sure that the other person who had expressed interest at Writer's House, I was, I let them know because they were sort of in, in the process of, you know, I think they'd taken the, taken the full manuscript, but they hadn't responded, but that got them to, you know, decide if they wanted to, to sign me or not. And they decided to sign me. So it ended up being, yes, absolutely, resultant of this very... Well, it might have happened anyways, but maybe you pushed you pushed along. And I, I remember you saying, you know, I always, like, Writer's House was always the goal. And, like, that it was... It was my for, dream. For, for whatever reason, that was your dream. And when yeah. it actually happened... I know. Um, but, but, you know, the idea that there's so many great agents and, like... Oh, we completely. Hear, we hear, we hear this all the time. Like you had a meeting, you changed one thing and then it happens or yeah. you almost give up and you're like, no, no, I'm just going to oh, do yeah. one more round. And that's when it happens. And I love the idea of like not giving up. And it's like, it might not be that you meet with somebody and they're going to offer like this did, but it might be that they just give you some insight into, into just something you need to fix or something yeah. you're unclear about or heightening the tension in that query or something that makes that difference. Absolutely. And I think it's so important for people to listen to all the advice that comes in, but also 
listen really carefully to your intuition because some that was my early mistakes over the my first novel that's you know shall never be seen that book i took advice from so many people that it became a franken book like it was no longer my book i was just taking all this advice cuz i thought it was what was going to get me signed with someone but in fact i was destroying my own artistic vision. I didn't value my own vision enough. And I think it's really hard when you're out there unsigned still, you're trying to fit yourself to be attractive to them, to be able to just like, that's why I said my biggest piece of advice is to write what you love because that's the one that's going to take off. And and I did abandon that drawer book. And as soon as I shifted gears, that's what propelled my career because I really needed to just throw that thing out, take all the stuff that I did learn and put it into something new. And I obviously learned a lot in 10 years, but uh, still learning, still learning a lot. But listen to your instincts and don't just give away all your gift because your gift is what's going to get you there, if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> it does. It does make sense. And I understand that impulse, though. You were just trying to do the right thing. Yeah. You were trying to be that writer who takes feedback and runs with it. And the line right. between taking feedback a, and running with it versus right. taking everyone's feedback and running in every direction. Right. So you really have to listen to the, and, and, you know, once you've done it for a while, you recognize you could have a perfectly lovely time meeting an individual, but when they're talk, when you're talking about the art itself, if they're like, I remember I had one person when this, when I was writing middle grade and he was like, it's just not dark enough it's just not dark enough. And I was like, I went home and I was like, oh God, I got to make it darker. I didn't know I had to make it darker. And so then I like put this whole dark thing on it. It was just so not a dark story. It just obviously it wasn't for that guy and it was never going to be for that guy. And he just happened to say those words. <laughs> and I tried to adhere, you know, I, I think it took me a while to learn that like being a good student is different than being a good author. You're the boss of your work. You do need to listen when it's really not working, but you need to be able to separate out, okay, what that person's saying sounds good, but that doesn't apply to my work because that's not what I'm trying to say. It's amazing to me how many people there are who speak with authority when they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Exactly. And, and I mean, whether it's no what they're talking about or that is their personal opinion but it's so hard to not go in the direction of every critique partner who says something like now if yeah. it's an agent or an editor you know I'd give it some weight if it's your agent or editor I'd give it more weight lots of weight <laughs> um but if it is just some random person who happens to speak authoritatively like if their voice sounds like pounding your fist on a desk it's yeah easy to just be like oh they must be right because they're so sure yeah yeah I don't know, but isn't that, that's what's gr so great about our panel sometimes because we literally get in fights over our things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is great. And a lot of yours where you hear, I, those are always the greatest ones, right? When you, when you read a query letter or you read a first page and then you hear all the responses and you realize, you know, those five are never going to pick up this book because we just don't, we're just not on the same wavelength. But then that one... Hmm. You know, you're like that one, I think would like it, you know, it does take some time to develop that eye. But I think that's what's so great about what you're doing here, because you give people opportunities and lots and many opportunities. And I think that's so great. 
it's just a really valuable resource for people. For some reason, I keep thinking of the too many cooks in the kitchen idea yes. for editing. Yes. Yeah. And you cannot make one soup be every soup. That is for sure. That's a very, exactly. Franken soups oh. not allowed. I mean, bad <laughs> things will happen. Like you've got to make your choice. Like, do you need a mirepoix? Do you need a sofrito? Do you need right. like spice? Do you need this other spice? You cannot have all of everything. It's and right. The vision yeah. just won't come through. Oh my it's, gosh. And that's, and, and what? And <laughs> I haven't which, had lunch, sorry. I know I'm kind of hungry too, <laughs> but all of a sudden I was thinking like, in which soup, like which character likes what soup? So it's really different points of views. Like, and I'm like, I think the character I'm working on my head right now, I'm like, she likes clam chowder. Yeah. And isn't it, it's so fun you know, too. I, I hate clam chowder. But isn't it so fun? I love that part in the writing process when you're like, you're, you're sort of putting the, um, the decorations on top of the frosting. You're like past the frosting and then you're like onto this, hmm, do we want sprinkles or do we want, and where you're really figuring out, yeah, this character likes Nicki Minaj. This character likes, you know, Taylor Swift. And this one's like on Led Zeppelin. I mean, you know, and it really helps you. Uh, actually, a lot of times that's what I do is I figure out what kind of music they like. And I know that's stereotypical of me, but it really helps me um, zone, just hone in on uh, what I want that character to be, how I want them to be moving okay. around in the world. Cam, tell us what this book's all about. Well, the book has multiple points of view. It follows most closely Q's story, Quinn who is about 16 at the opening of the story. And she goes to a private boarding school in New Hampshire. So it's very remote and very elite and very competitive. And uh, she is um, a legacy. Her family's gone there since the school's inception. So she, unfortunately, though, is struggling. She was assaulted in the prior to the opening chapters. She was sexually assaulted at the prom by one of the star rowers. And uh, then the other two characters balance out that very sort of intense, dramatic point of view. She, It's a story of her finding her voice, hence the titles, Sharp Edge of Silence, when she's, she's sort of struggling to regain her power um, that she feels was, or was certainly, stripped away from her by this guy who just walks around like nothing ever happened and is still at the top of the food chain. So it's, you know, in one way, it's a it's a dark topic to tackle. But on the other hand, she really is learning how to put it in perspective and, and sort of reclaim herself. And she comes together with other people in the story who come to support her. And so it's really about finding your voice. And um, yeah. would you read us the first page? So it's Starts in September, and it says Thursday night, Q, lower mid. I weave between trees, hidden, exposed, hidden, exposed, navigating roots and rocks and earth, spongy with leaf rot. Sprawled between tidy footpaths, these woods are unruly and thirsty, sucking the darkness between grooves in the tree bark and crevices in the rocks. The sky's at its darkest now, between sunset and moonrise. So many betweens. I'm between myself and myself, I think. I feel my bones, but don't recognize my skin. Again. This strange new self drinks in the power of night. I know what I was. I don't know what I'm becoming, but I know what I need to do. Get Officer Doughty's gun because Colin Pierce must die. I take care crossing the spiky skeleton of a fallen pine that ripped right through my running tights and slashed my knee last night. 
The tree is a landmark and I know I'm nearly there. Rectangles of light appear through the black lace of leaves. Anderson House, home of LPS Campus Safety. It's up ahead. At the wood's edge, I stop. 20 feet of lawn separates me and Officer Dowdy. It's cold for September. My breath is uneven, billowing from my face in ragged blasts. I clamp my jaw and exhale through my nostrils, not wanting the act of fucking breathing to give me away. Framed by the lit window, Dowdy sits at his desk writing in his log. It's three minutes before 8 p.m. and I can practically count off the seconds until he glances at the clock and commences his quitting time routine. Soon he'll walk his deputy, Safety Officer McPhee, who's buzzing around campus in a pimped out golf cart, and sign off for the day. He'll lock up Anderson, get in his pickup, and head home. Wow. I think that's great because it gives us such a good idea of what's happening. And one thing that you do, and I imagine our readers or listeners notice this too, just adding a gun in her hand and an intention flips the power dynamic in such a beautiful way. I worried when you described the book that it would be mostly a story of taking power away, but it sounds like it's a story of her getting it back. Yes, very much. I was really cognizant of sort of the, you know, it's a YA. So sort of this post me too generation uh, how they these sort of more activated young women would react in a situation that you know three decades ago two decades ago the same situation would have just been like completely hush hush under the rug and so this character is you know she's privileged in many many ways I guess that was a little of my point too was that it doesn't matter how privileged you are it, you can always be somebody's victim, unfortunately. So, um, so I really wanted her to be grappling with that piece of it, of having her power taken away and figuring out how she's going to get it back. And her go-to becomes, is a little unhinged because she decides she's going to just go vigilante. She did not, you, you discover later, she didn't have, she was so traumatized on the night that it happened that she did not do any of the things that she, and in fact, she's kind of angry at herself that she didn't, you know, reach out to a friend or, or, you know, go to campus security or anything. She just, she just school let out, you know, her, she got picked up from school the next day for the summer because it was the last, the summer send off dance thing. And uh, so she has no legal or any kind of pass she can take to do anything, but she's determined she's not going to give up her spot at this fabulous school. So um, and her legacy part, it's such a part of their family. So that's kind of the driver. Then again, if she didn't gather evidence, on the one hand, that would make it harder for her to make a case, but it also doesn't establish motive if she does commit a crime. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Never thought about that. <laughs> I mean, so your other book, The Stepping Off Place, went back and forth in time. And mm -hmm. what's so interesting to me is you've gone one book back and forth of time. Um, and then you have this other book that you've done multiple point of views. And I think just for our listeners, I wanted you to read that some of that first page, but I also want to read just, uh, just a paragraph for each other character because they're so interesting, the tone shifts. And when Cam talked about this before, I was like, wow, it sounded darker than what it, it is, you know, that there is there's an entire school with all of these kids that have different motivations and different wants and needs. And the place is vibrant in its own dysfunction, you know? And so I wanted to read, this is Charlotte, and this is actually page 312. And I picked it because I wanted, now that you guys have met Q in this first line, Q has, is, is still struggling here. 
Charlotte, something in Q's eyes is haunted or hunted maybe, like a panicked child. I need to call someone, but she, she needs me. I feel it. A tug from something in her into something to me. I eye the gun. So she finally got the gun. That's a spoiler. She can't, <laughs> she can't be trusted right now. She had some kind of breakdown. Look, you, I say, breathing hard. You have to tell me. My mouth is, is so dry. I need to stop. Swallow. What the fuck? My voice shakes. I gather my strength. Tell me what's going on. I let my finger hover above my phone screen. Now. <laughs> it sounded awful. Now. <laughs> Okay, she says, looking at the sky. Her nostrils nostrils tremble and her chest moves fast. Just tears roll down her cheek. Just don't call anyone. She looks at me unblinking. Something's off about her eyelashes. Like, where are they? Please? So, so once again, so now we have the point of view of Charlotte finding Quinn, like when they finally come together. I don't know if this is, is this is too much of a spoiler, Cam? No, I mean, you guys already know that she's been <laughs> assaulted. She just hasn't told any anyone yet. Right. So, but but the, the power of, of this different point of view with Charlotte, you know, looking at Q and, and really taking in who her friend is, is so incredibly powerful. And I also want to read Max. In preparation for Monday's afternoon practice, my debut in front of Coach Follett, I spent all day Sunday studying dozens of Chauncey's GoPro race reels and poring over the short and snarky guide to coxing. Sepp gave me a box of Chauncey's coxing notebooks from under his bed in their room, which Sepp thought might be helpful, though admitted he didn't know much about them. They resembled a mad professor's scrawling to me, but I read every one anyhow, resuming class today, feeling like emerging from 36 hours in a one person submarine. So he he gets kind of well. We didn't tell anything about Max, but Ma- Max Max is the the nerdy scholarship kid that gets brought to campus because he's phenomenal at anything that's connected to engineering and and STEM and all that. And he feels a little used by the school because he's managed to put their robotics club team on the map and they've won two European awards. And it's really because of him, but he doesn't have any friends really, except for his roommate. And he's he's just kind of biding his time. He knows it's going to help him get into a good school because it's so well connected. So uh, that's his sort of status quo. And then the rowing team, of course, one of the rowers is the rapist, as I mentioned. None of his friends know that. But so they need a coxswain um, for their team because their great coxswain that's taken them to all these championships gets busted for plagiarism. So he gets kicked out for the semester. And um, so they recruit Max. So Max suddenly finds himself swimming with the sharks, so to speak. And uh, so he has a whole character arc about, um, you know, navigating male friendships, male sort of bro culture. Um, and then also it gets a little darker because there's a, there's a prank club involved that's a secret prank club. And so his, his story becomes navigating, like it's really easy to say what you will and won't do when you're sitting home most of the time by yourself. But when you're in the throes of, you know, suddenly having all this sort of social class and power. That word keeps coming up because it really is a book about navigating power structures. And um, so, yeah, so so that scene is where he's practicing. Um, he, he's a lot of comic relief in the book for, uh, for m- much 
of it just because he's got a totally different story. But eventually all three characters, uh, Charlotte, the one you read second, she's obviously going to play a big role, but Max kind of gets sucked into things too. So they all get braided together for the ending of the book. So does this kid who is suddenly going from building robots in a predictable world, (laughs) suddenly surrounded by jocks, does he encounter toxic masculinity for the first time? And what does he do with that? Boy, does he. So there is a team culture with the boys on the boat. It's very male, but it's, I purposely made a positive male culture. And then this prank club is the toxic male cult, which overlaps by two kids in the, you know, a few kids in the boat are also in the secret prank club but um not all not the whole team there's a lot of team that's totally oblivious to it it's because i want to separate that out because i think rowing is an amazing team sport and i i love it so much so i don't i don't want to cast shade on that but um but the male culture is like run amok based on the fact that in the 70s, you get a little dip into the school's history and the, it was all male until 1973 or something. I can't remember exactly which year I made it, but um, and there was a lot of resistance to it going co-ed, which, of course, is absolutely true in a lot of boarding schools and even the Ivy Leagues. You know, there was a lot of resistance to opening it up to women. So um, so that's sort of where the prank club came from was like this way. It was kind of like a way to, you know, subvert, I guess. And so it's always had this history of, you know, sort of sexist. They've got a huge trunk of old Playboy magazines, you know, and uh, Max points out that those women would be somewhere in their 70s and 80s by now, which breaks everybody out in the, in the barn. But um, geez, I don't want to give away too much. No, don't give ra- away too much. Yeah. So anyways, the rapist, of course, is like in the center of this prank club and he has taken it for a really dark turn. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to give away too yeah, much more. Yeah, 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 leave it there. You did hint a little bit that your characters also have fun, that this is not all scary and dark. Oh, it's and definitely not. I wonder if we could could see a glimpse of that if you can think of a scene where we can read a quick clip of that just to show our listeners um Um, sure yeah all right let's see she's i was thinking of that scene julie you know the scene where they're it's when they're in the girls bathroom at the dance before they walk out Mm. on the floor yeah yeah, except for it's going to take me a second to find it because i don't remember i don't remember where it is either the book i know it's in a flashback it's 400. <laughs> I know it's really long, but you know what? It takes that long to tell a story with that many characters. If you want them to have a real arc, yeah. at least that's what, that's what we decided. Did you get any pushback on length? No. Mm-mm. I mean, at first, oh, here it is. At first I did. At first they were like, let's try to keep it under that. But then no. Also, I think part of it was the timing of the pandemic. Like I I do think that we had a weird little blip in all rules (laughs) during that, that stretch, but okay. All right. It's on 140. Okay. Yeah. Uh, All right. So this is from Charlotte's point of view and she's worrying about She's questioning whether her totally hot boyfriend is actually really that into her. The whole book, she's she's never sure how committed he is to her or not, and it's driving her crazy. Um, so so she's walking home, and she I spend my walk back to my room rewatching my favorite 
mind movies of us. I especially love the first night, Summer Sendoff. I've replayed it all summer. Q and I stand side by side in front of the mirrors in the girls' bathroom. We're both wearing cream-colored dresses in keeping with Summer Sendoff tradition. Mine's a sleeveless silk sheath that drapes low near the cleavage and lower in the back. Hers is lacy with spaghetti straps, cinched at the waist. Q's fixing that wild mane of curly hair she has, and I'm reapplying lipstick. The power bass from the dance song pumps through the marble floor tiles, and we're tipping our heads to the beat. I'm keeping rhythm to Nicki Minaj, Q says. Sorry, Dad. Like he can hear her in Australia or wherever she said he was. He's not a fan, she adds for clarity. But on cue, we simultaneously point to each other with finger guns and belt out B to the A to the N to the G to the uh. <laughs> I use my lipstick as a mic. B to the A to the N to the G to the hey. We double over laughing. I'm a little... I pinch my fingers. Buzzed. Q has a silent laugh with squeaks. She seriously sounds like a rubber ducky, and it's freaking hilarious. You guys, whispers Hannah, standing guard at the door out to the gallery. How much vodka did you put in your drinks? When she pushes the door open a crack, the music floods in. Q and I lean into each other. Bang, bang, there goes your heart. Shh, <laughs> Hannah says, pulling the door closed. Tell me about the Whitney Inn. I had salmon, Q says, and does a chef's kiss. C'est bon. She shuts a stall door. Not the food, Hannah says. Her dress is sleeveless, high neck, only to the thigh. Q's talking softly in there. Hannah and I exchange a puzzled glance, and then I recognize it. Hannah, Q's rapping. She knows the rap. Q starts squeaking again, squeaking again which cracks up me and even Hannah. Seriously, Hannah says when Q comes out. Was dinner awkward? Flirty? What? awkward, I say, tucking the lipstick into my sequin clutch. Q washes her hands at the sink. I don't think guys like Colin and Seb can be awkward, she says. Think about it. Awkwardness is worrying about what others think of you. They don't do that. They just serve as the ideal. There's a name for it. Pro, pro, pro something? Prototype? Hannah offers. Yes! Everyone tries to be like the prototype, and when we don't live up to it, we're embarrassed, which equals awkward. I consider Q's point. She's either onto something genius or drunker than me, I say. Or both, Hannah says. I think that's true of genetic miracle. I think Colin just fakes it hard. So I keep going. Stop. I think that's pretty good. I think it lightens it a little bit. I guess I just wanted to like fill out the dimension for our listeners of, you know, it's not just painful. Oh yeah, it's definitely not just painful. Um, <laughs> so talk to us about these three point of views. Like why did you decide to go for three? And how did you stylistically create such different voices for every single um, character? Character. Okay, two big questions. All right, so the first part is, because it's a book about sexual assault, I mean, we've all heard he said, she said. And, and, you know, very, very often these come down to he said, she said. So I really wanted to investigate the various points of view. So Q, of course, I've already described that. Max, you get the idea. Charlotte is a baseline female who loves the school, is successful at everything she does. She's got a little anxiety, a little perfectionism, but basically she's just like a solid kid. And um, she doesn't really question any of the very subtle sexism in the school setting because it kind of works for her. Like she's dating the hottest guy in the school. And I always noticed that growing up is that, you know, in college when I was taking my first classes and, you know, women's lit and all that. And you kind of get exposed to the whole idea of all these feminist ideas that the people who were most resistant to listening about feminism back then and sometimes today are the people that it's there. It works for them. 
to like that that old fashioned way of, you know, it kind of works for them. So they don't really have to question it. I'm not trying to say that they're evil or anything. I'm just saying they don't really notice it because they're getting they're doing just fine. So, um, yeah, so. So that's why Charlotte's in there. Charlotte has a big arc because obviously her eyes are going to get opened up to this whole world that she didn't know existed. And Max's eyes are getting opened in a different way. And he, one of the key recurring phrases of the book is the um, the school's uh, sort of motto and is who will you be? Like, who will you be at like Crop Phelps? All the admissions letters say, who will you be? Who will you be? And um, so it kind of comes up again and again. One of the kids is uh, doing a newspaper, you know, doing a, a running series called Who Will You Be? And they're going back for years and highlighting all these different graduates and everything. So I think all the characters are trying to figure out what they're going to stand for once they have all this knowledge that they didn't know at the beginning of the book. So the school's kind of looking at it on a very almost like surface level because it's all about prestige and, and um, you know, su succeeding in the sense of your GPA and what school you get in and what you do after you graduate as opposed to like really building character. And so, um, so that's why I chose to have it in all those perspectives. Even though there's only three official narrators, there the fourth, there's a epistolary uh, quality to it where, you know, you get the acceptance letters from the school, you overhear, quote unquote, um, some text conversations once the administration realizes that they've got a bit of a problem, how they handle that so that you get a glimpse into the school as well. And then all of it was really strategic in terms of writing it, uh, it was very easy to, for me, it was very easy to come up with Max's voice to be so different from the other characters. And then uh, because he's the only one who's got sort of a mathematical, scientific thinking mind, um, Charlotte's a, a ballet dancer. And so she is very much, uh, when I went to write her, I would just always be picturing someone who's that physically connected to themselves how they sort of process by moving around and just kind of, you know, her dialogue tags might always have something to do with something she's, you know, st stretching out her shoulder muscle or something that that I could picture dancers kind of being noticing. And she notices when she notices other people, like when she's noticing the guys on the team, the rowing team, she's like, how do they make themselves look so confident? Because when I on stage, you know, when you're trying to evoke a certain emotion. So that's kind of that's kind of how I kept her voice and her um, perspective different. That, that's so interesting. One of my favorite parts about Charlotte was how even when she felt uncertain, she would we would walk with confidence. Yeah, well, she'd put she has her ballet superpower, right. she calls yeah. it because she yeah. just pulls her shoulders back like she's on stage. Because she's a perfectionist, she's also always worried that somebody's going to find a flaw. <laughs> so like she's very hyper self-conscious when she's walking over across the cafeteria or whatever, you know, who isn't? But yeah, that's sort of how she sees it. And then Q has a music background. And that one of the things is that she's not singing or playing or guitar at all because she's just kind of gone into this funk. She's also paints. She's so she's very much a creative and all her creativity has just kind of gone dormant. And in, in fact, 
part of her uh, sort of healing is from she brings the music and the art back in. And that's sort of what helps her start to heal. But um, so, you know, I loved having her, you know, when she's walking down the path and she's kicking the gravel and, you know, she hears it as like sounding like the brush drums. So so even though they're all students at the same very sort of homogenous in many ways schools, they're just very different kids. So I had to work on that a little bit between the girls, but they start to come to life after a while. And then you can't even, it's just, you know, how it is. Then, then they become alive in your head. And so you just, but I did have to work on that a lot because two teenage girls, I really had to work on making them different. Charlotte's way p- more prim. She's Midwestern and she's she's way more um, reserved, whereas Q's a little more bohemian. So that helped. Um, shape their dialogue. Mm. So I think I'd like to talk to you a little bit about macro and micro tension. So in this book, you have like huge, like the, the, the tension of the entire school, but then you have all these kind of micro tensions, how or tiny tensions, how do you decide as a writer to add tension to scenes? And how do you hold those tensions as you go forward? I think t- tension is so important in any genre. I think, I mean, if you think about comedic tension, all of comedy is in the timing. And to me, timing is just tension. So uh, I think that there's very few scenes that shouldn't have any tension. I, I can't really picture a scene that shouldn't have any tension, but I think of it as like a, a gas pedal. It's like, you know, you decide how hard you want to push the gas as, as the writer, you take the narrative control. And I think there's some really... Uh, if you're, let's say we want a pedal to the metal tension, some of the strategies I use are a lot of times I'll use physical discomfort details that that just make you kind of as the reader kind of like, ooh, that doesn't sound comfortable, you know, like uh, in the first pages, cue you know, we know she's snagged her knee on this ragged fallen tree and she's having trouble. She's trying to hold her breath kind of, and she's, um, bites the inside of her cheek when she's running. And it's just like all these little things that just kind of add to that discomfort. Cause you know, and then of course she's trying to steal something and it's a gun. So (laughs) that's kind of the big tension, but you can um, shorten sentences. A lot of times I'll shorten the sentences. And if you're writing for anybody over age 14, swearing is always a good one. You know, when you have your character drop the F-bomb, if you do it in meaningful ways, you know, I think, or other kinds of expletives, whatever, they don't have to be swears, but sort of using using the language. Shortening the sentences makes gives it sort of breathless feeling to me. And also white space. So shortening some of your uh, paragraphs so that visually on the page, and I know this doesn't translate to audio or even sometimes Kindle can, you know, even when I'm reading an ebook, it doesn't always translate. But if you think about leaving some space for your reader to kind of process, it almost makes it in a spotlight, if that makes sense. Kind of um, like pauses in a speech. Yeah. Yeah. Where you just wait. And I feel uh, that can, that's kind of an unconscious cue to your, to your reader, I think. It's almost like a hear that again in your mind or yeah, that again. Exactly. So those are some of the sort of granular things I will try. 
I always try to choose my word choice really carefully. Like I'm just going to use this example in chapter one, when the truck, when the officer Dowdy's truck is driving away, his shoes crunch the path, the door opens, slams, engine turns over, light floods the woods around me, the tires grind, spit gravel, and headlights swivel away. Then silence, I'm alone. So I wanted to have all those sounds that were crunchy. So I'm purposely choosing words that are sharp. So that's when you want the pedal to the metal. I think it's easier to do it when you want the pedal to the metal. I think it's harder to do when you're in a more subtle, subtle scene. I've got a good example. (laughs) Um, So this is a little more comic. (laughs) Max is about, okay, yeah. Actually, this is the first time you meet Max, so I'm not going to tell you anything. Tell me we're close to sealing the deal on this thing, please, Colin Pierce says. He barely fits on the student chair, elbows and knees jutting into space like a crane. We're in the second floor lab, and the custodian already asked us twice if he could vacuum. Colin and I are partners for our physics intensive project. We've set out to determine the initial and final velocity of horizontally launched projectiles when gravity is the only force. I mean, air resistance is a force too, but Mrs. Lewis told me to leave that out for simplicity's sake in this experiment. It's only September. We would be close, I say in response to his question, letting him fill in if you would actually contribute. But I don't look at Colin while I say this because though we both know he needs me to get an A on this assignment, we are equally equally aware he's got enough stored energy in one foot to launch my ass from here to Spangler in a stiff wind. He makes a throaty sound of amusement. Chill, Mr. Spock. So I'm just going to stop there. But the idea of these two characters, I wanted you to get both that Colin Pierce, who Hugh has already named as her perpetrator. So the audience knows who Colin Pierce is. He's sort of this big, cocky dick. And uh, he's totally using Max. But I wanted to be able to show that Max, his reactions to everything create the tension because it's like one thing's happening in the physical scene and then everything else is happening in his head and they, they don't really match. It's like... You're using his interior monologue or whatever you call that to bring the tension to a physical scene that wouldn't necessarily appear to be tense. And I think that um, is a way to get your reader invested because we're kind of curious what, or at least for me, it's hard for me to speak on my own thing. But that to me was a way to draw readers in because you can see the sort of juxtaposition of what's actually happening and what he's feeling. I've been wanting to ask this for like 20 minutes and forgive Uh-oh. me if it's a terrible question, but okay. <laughs> were you thinking about Chekhov's gun the whole time that you did the first scene? You know, the idea that if there is a gun in the act one, it has to appear again and fire perhaps by act three. No, I had a vision. So when I sold this book, it was um, just the proposal. And so I had the characters in my head from the beginning and I, I kept saying to Allie, my agent, kept saying, I keep having this vision of someone opening a drawer in a dark room and getting a gun. And I don't know how to fit that in. That's just like, it feels like the starting place of the story. And very early on, I thought maybe it was um, like a brother or a friend, male, trying to get revenge on behalf of this, of Q, who was a victim. And then, and then I was like, 
am I doing? That is so like 1950s. So I decided, wow, I'm just going to put that, I'm just going to make that be cute because, you know, I feel like, wow, who doesn't love a female revenge plot, first of all? And second of all, you kind of can see someone who's just so angry at what has been taken and, and it could make you angry enough to do something completely unhinged. So no, I would love to say, oh yes, I was thinking of Chekhov, but no, I wasn't. You're probably the first person that's ever said that to me and I never made that connection, but uh, yeah. Sorry, nerd alert. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Tell the listeners how you started this and about the burnt page. Oh, well, so the first uh, page is the acceptance letter. The first one goes to Charlotte because she's the most baseline character. So you get to know like where she's from. And I kind of know just like the teacher and reader in me knows that people might blow past this because it doesn't look that exciting. The second one you hear, learn that Max is a scholarship kid. But then the third one is Q's and it's just burnt right at the, um, after you find out she's a legacy. As a sixth generation legacy, your family is well aware of the value of character education. And then it says, who will you be? And that's right where it's burnt. So I love that we could get it, the burn mark right on that question. But I, um, I hope that, you know, that catches readers' eyes so that they'd be like, what? You know, kind of turn back a few pages to figure that out. But um, yeah, yeah so, will you be the one who burns it all down? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, I think that people who go to a school, first of all, you know, you can kind of picture it like a Harvard of boarding schools, you know, or prep schools, but it's sort of like, you know, and I say this having sent one of my children to private school. But you kind of have to buy into the mindset of that school if you're going to go to the expense of and just, you know, send your kid off to to out of a free system in the town you live. You're kind of buying into that mindset. And so the school throughout, I mean, at some points you're realizing what lengths they will go to to maintain that reputation, but also just how they constantly all their promotional materials are feeding into that mindset. You know, I purposely didn't have it at a public, set at a public school, though of course we know these things happen in any school, but I purposely put it at a private school because although this is true of public schools as well, I think when your entire existence is based on tuition and, and endowment, you really need that reputation to be something that not only just homes along, it's got to be like inspired, you know, in order to keep the whole enterprise running. So, um, so it was fun to put those epistolary pieces throughout and sort of that, that oftentimes, that's another thing we didn't talk about the tension. A lot of times it's the juxtaposition of scene to scene. So like at right after uh, you find out that Q is trying to steal a gun, the next one just goes to this very I don't want to call it banal because it's not, but very much more typical contemporary fiction romance (laughs) 
of Charlotte, you know, talking with a friend over over her FaceTime in the back of the library and sort of gossiping. And that's a pretty major juxtaposition. And then, um, you know, I could do that with the epistolary pieces too, because you could think it's all going along one way. And then all of a sudden you get this other piece of information. I just kind of love stories that you have to put the puzzle pieces together. So, yeah. So it's, it's, it's so interesting, right? How each book has its own process and, you know, like you've been tackling, you know, some very hard topics here. Yeah. Where are you going next? Are you going like, <laughs> what mood are you walking into? Well, here's the thing. Idea. Don't tell us about the idea. Don't let it out there, but tell us about oh, the Oh, I won't. Uh, I am, yeah, I, I feel, well, first of all, you know, as a debut author, I think a lot of debut, I think a lot of authors' first books are heavily drawn from something that they, from life. I, I, I've heard many authors say that. And even just as a reader, when you read someone's debut and then you read, go on to read five more books, you can tell that one is super personal. I don't know. And I feel like um, I picked these two topics that were kind of defining things in my life. And now I'm done. (laughs) And so I want to move on. And um, I really like writing funny. And so I, you know, this is something I ask. Allie about him. Do I have to write another really gripping, you know, tackling mental health or big social issues? And uh, she was like, no, no, you can, you can do whatever you want now. And so I, I also think, you know, both of those books were conceptualized prior to the pandemic. And then, you know, had I known that I was going to be writing about something difficult like that during a time that was really difficult for everybody anyway, I, you know, I probably would have made a pivot to comedy a little sooner. Um, or, you know, I love, I love romance. I don't know if I, I obviously am drawn to a atypical narrative style. Like I loved doing multi-point of view and I love doing a time. What is it called? I can't remember what it's called. What's it called when you're time, you know, in the stepping off place, it's the. And medias res. When it's out of sequence. Non-linear format. Thank you. Non, (laughs) I love, I love the non-linear format too. I loved going back and forth in time. I know that whatever I do, it will still have that piece of complexity to it because that's just what makes it really fun for me to write. So I like a little bit of a surprising narrative approach, but I do think I can do that with a lot of different kinds of stories. And I'm very drawn to young adult, new adult uh, romance, you know, um, coming of age is just evergreen for me. Um, So I know, I know it'll have something to do with that, but yeah. Also a little, I liked how this one was plottier than my first one. And I think I'm going to drill down on that part. Fun. So what the, one of the last things I thought our listeners would enjoy from you is um, you had a terrific book launch. I know you're a school librarian. So can you give um, some tips about what you did at the book launch and how it went and some of the the ways that you organize prizes and such? Sure. Um, I wanted it really to feel like a party. And since my first book launched in lockdown, (laughs) there was no party. There wasn't even any live events. So I was really excited to do something live. And I want to thank all the people who come 
because, you know, it just feels like they're doing, they're just doing, coming to celebrate the fact that you published something, which is, you know, so I pulled, um, I wanted to do door prizes. And so I chose things that represented each character. So I pulled, so for the rowing for Max, I had a U.S. rowing wet bag, which is actually a really nice wet bag. And uh, for Charlotte, actually for Q, one of the things that is sort of in the story to help remind you how young she is, is she still has her childhood teddy bear that she keeps at school. So I have a big teddy bear that I gave out as one of the prizes. And then um, Charlotte's boyfriend, Seb, his family owns like the second largest scotch whiskey company in the world. So uh, I have a nice bottle of scotch to give out. And um, I can't. And then I and then next to it, I thought no one. These are going to seem so random to the people who haven't read the book yet. So I pulled excerpts and put them on cards and sort of set them up in front of the various prizes. I feel like there was more probably the other prizes were books and then I had some fun stickers made of miniature stickers of the cover um, and the UK cover as well so they're very different covers and then uh, we just had it was kind of fun we had it at a um, brew pub and so it was free to have it there and the bookstore came print bookstore came and set up a, a, a sales table and um, we just kind of were festive at the beginning and then sat down with a friend of mine who's a podcaster as well. And she did the interview and then signed books and just had fun seeing everybody. It was a really fun launch, actually. I really enjoyed it. It sounds so immersive. I love that. <laughs> well, it was fun. It really was. Uh, I highly advise finding a beer garden because I feel like a lot of my friends were able to get other friends to come just because of the venue. And it also felt a little more fun than even though I love indie bookstores, it felt a little more festive and very economical because we did it on a Monday night. So he didn't charge us for the space. And, uh, uh, he was just happy to have extra business on a Monday. So it worked out great. Yeah, I imagine for other writers looking for venues somewhere that um, sells food or drink will probably yeah. give you the space for free on a Monday. If Absolutely. Open. Yeah. And you'll be surprised how many of your friends will rally. Like it was fun. I had a really great turnout. It was great. Mm. I'm so glad. Thanks. Did you have teenagers as your critique partners to get the sound of the dialogue? I, I've heard of some people doing that. Um, um, a couple of the people that I name at the back of the book are teenagers. I have, well, now they're college age, so they really aren't teenagers anymore, but um, they still are in touch enough that they can, you know, my daughter will be like, uh, no, you absolutely cannot say that. <laughs> I'm like, really? I thought that was very cool. No. No, no, You're no. like, it was lit. And she's like, no, no, not <laughs> happening. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I do keep in touch with, uh, that's a good piece of being in schools is, you know, I get to keep a pretty close beat on the kids. So it helps. Yeah. So Cam, after all this time, what's your number one tip for writers? Write because you write the story you love. I know that sounds kind of cliche, but if you love it, it's what it, it will help drive you through you know, the murky middle, and it'll help you want to make the ending just such a great payoff. You just really touch into all the things that you care about the most and figure out how to wind those into your characters. And I, I think it's like almost a magic thing. I, 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 it can be when it works. Well, we are hoping for that magic experience for all of you out there listening. That's right. Cam, I'm so happy this all worked out. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. 
Cam, did you know how close you were when all of this was about to happen? Mm, I mean, I, here are the indicators I got. Because I had a long track record of what I thought were near misses, then I started getting like what I would, I didn't blanket query, but I, I very selectively queried people that I had a sense I would like to work with. Did my research. And when I started getting personalized, like, you know, some when someone who's a really big name writes you a paragraph of why they don't think that it's for them, but they think it's that I'm right on the edge, like that, those kinds of things. But I'll tell you what, about a month before that, after I finally gave up on that first book, I literally almost just stopped. But then I was like, you know what, but I made all these wonderful connections with great people. I mean, I met Julie through writing. I have some of my most favorite people are through writing. And on top of that, I don't know how not to process through writing. So like, I just decided, well, if nothing ever comes of it, nothing ever comes of it, but I love to write a story and I'm going to keep keep writing. And maybe it was letting that go that finally let me trust my own voice. You know, I stopped trying to do it for everyone else. Well, and it's so interesting. I ask because there are so many writers who don't know that they are occupying that last five. I feel like we are so lucky and that so many of the writers here are in that last 5%. They're so close. There's that one thing to change and they have no idea how close they are. Yeah, it's true. Just keep doing it because you love doing it. And yeah, I almost think it's the point, and and I recall this with you, that you got the page and a half rejection. Do you recall that? And it was so long. Yeah. It was so detailed. <laughs> and it was so painful. Yeah. And that was the rejection before the acceptance. Yeah. It's interesting, yeah. right? Yeah. Like it's just like. But you can tell you're getting, because these people are so busy. I mean, I, I, you guys are so busy. Like nobody has time to write a page and a half if they aren't somehow, you know, you can tell if somebody's really been thinking about it. And then you're like, wow, oh my gosh, this person sat for however many minutes and wrote, wrote this. And so when you can actually take a rejection and be like, okay, this is a positive sign because <laughs> I've had regular rejections and this one's different, you know, and I got a few, not many one and a half pagers, but I definitely got some people who I was really hoping and um, got some good, good, good negative feedback. If that, that is a thing, I guess is what I'm here to tell you. There is good negative feedback. <laughs> And I'm happy to hear you say this because no one ever believes me when I say those rejections mean you're close. And and even to the extent of like, I will send someone, gosh, years ago, I sent this beautiful personal rejection. Someone put it in one of those, you know, writer's forums and another writer's like, that's a form, disregard. And I wanted to be like, no, it was not. That was a real letter. Yeah. Who has time to do that? Come on. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's when you send the letter to someone else because I think that you're just like with like blind hot rage because it's like that close, right? Yeah. And then once somebody else processes it, you're like, oh, this yeah. is a really good letter. Yeah. There's a lot of really positive things here. Well, like, are some things you want to do some action on? And I don't recall if you did or not, but like, I think it's just, I mean, once you're through it, it doesn't seem as bad as when you're in it. Yeah. Well, Very I, true. I know it doesn't feel good to get a really detailed letter about things that you could do differently, but I'm not going to risk making someone mad unless I really, really care. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a great perspective to hear and, from you. And I think too, I, you know, we always talk about just the humanistic part of this business. If I recall the agent that sent you that 
1.5 page letter left the industry right yeah left the industry very soon after that yeah and so yeah you almost are like was she sparing me because she knew but who knows but in any in any case I do think yeah you just have the journey it is it is and 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 if you can let go of of every taking everyone so personally that you're that you start to doubt I mean you almost can't but I know that feeling of doubt self-doubt that came for me when I would get those is tough it's really tough but if you're catching people's attention enough for them to give more than a form rejection or no response at all which I know is actually pretty common you know you're getting there You really are. Well, I'm so happy you can join us. I'm so happy that this book is in the world. I'm so happy that you were able to tell us your story and inspire writers out there. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, guys. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.